Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast that looks at the film career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back to 2004 and taking a look at the direct-to-video cop thriller direct action. In this fun throwback to 80s and 90s action flicks, Dolph plays Sergeant Frank Gannon, an upstanding and tough detective who must survive the next few hours of his shift as he's getting ready to testify later that evening against members of his very own unit. Special Agent Frank Gannon. So Frank, you've been kind of rough on the workforce, pal. Is accused of murder. Please tell me you didn't gun down three cops this morning. These guys were cops, Sergeant. Now he must prove his innocence. You know what we're up against. Before time. At five o'clock this evening. Runs out. That's three hours. There's something else going on. I'm gonna find out why. So these bad cops are part of the direct action unit. You're gonna end up on the wrong side of their guns. I want you to put out an ATV on Sergeant Gannon and Officer Ross. Bet you didn't expect this on your first day. Nope. It's not too late to still do the right thing here. Theft, extortion, murder. Dolph Lundgren. You call that nothing. Direct action. You want justice? Is that it? Got some justice for you. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and joining me to discuss this one today is Doug Greenberg of the Rocky Minute. Doug, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me, man. This is Thanks for saving this one, especially for me. I know you know I'm a, a police officer, so uh, I, get, I really get to go down and dirty into some, uh, you know, some fictional uh, cop drama. I love it. Well, you know, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, when you and I first started talking, I pretty much, I, I handpicked this one for you for a couple of those reasons. Uh, first of all, let me just say thank you for your service. Hmm. I, I, I come from a family of law enforcement. Uh, my, my dad is a cop and everything. And so, um, yeah, that, that's, a. Uh, a profession that I have always had the, the utmost, uh, respect and appreciation for. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I will say right now as well, I've always been a sucker for cop movies. That's just a genre that I have always, um, loved. If it's something cheesy, such as Lethal Weapon or Action Jackson, I'm in. Or if it's, uh, more on a serious level, like a Training Day or End of Watch, still bring it on. Well, uh, yeah. First, thank you for saying that. Um, and, uh, I, I like the cheat, the cheesier, the better for me because I find like if, if cop movies are trying to take themselves too seriously, I find myself really poking more holes in like the procedural and like the, the reality of the, the situations more. Uh, so for me, the cheesier, the better because I can actually just sit back and enjoy it for what it is. And yeah, and I always had when, when I, uh, you know, first, uh, came up with the, uh, obviously uh, the concept of the show and everything like that. And you and I got to talking, I just had it mm -hmm. in my mind. I was thinking, man, 
I think it would be a ton of fun to discuss a cheesy cop thriller with a cop. That's kind of how I came about this. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, as luck would have it, here we are. Well, and I guess, you know, before we really dive into the movie, I'm just curious because I imagine there's a few, uh, quite a few things that you have to say about this, but I'll just go, I'll just go there right now, actually. Does this film get anything right about uh, police work? I'm assuming no, right? Uh, almost 100% no. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the, the thing, and this, this isn't exclusive to this. The thing that gets me about cop movies is like they can just leave a trail of, of carnage behind them and there isn't a single sheet of paperwork done to explain any of it. <laughs> and there's yeah. quite a few, quite a few areas in this. I mean, that's to me like paperwork. I mean, is the, uh, the unseen, uh, grind of police work and it's and anytime i see something like that i'm like oh that guy that has to do that report oh man i feel so bad for him but there's never a report done well and i mean i'm i'm, I'm assuming have you seen the film uh, so i married an axe murderer with mike yes. myers yes okay if you remember his buddy in the film i think his buddy in the film is probably the best character mm -hmm. but his best friend mm -hmm. in the film is played by a uh, great actor uh, anthony lapaglia and if you remember yeah, right. he 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 joins the the force. He wants to be a police officer because he has seen movies just like this, and he he just expects the uh, the job to be like this. And there's that great scene where he's talking to Alan Arkin. He's like, "I've never gotten to hang off a helicopter. I've never gotten to run from an explosion." <laughs> right, right. Like, imagine that's that's the only reference to police uh, to like the police job that you have, and then you go into it, and it's really like the mundane stuff where you're slogging through your shift and. Like, this isn't like it is on, on TV at all. Well, and all, all the cops in this film are firing machine guns. I guess I have to answer. I have mm -hmm. to ask you um, in your entire career, because how many how many years have you served? Uh, 17, 17 and a half, 17 and a half. So how many of those of those 17 years? How many uh, how often have you been able to fire a machine gun? Like that. Cool. In this film. See, uh, too many to count. Uh, zero, actually. Okay. <laughs> zero. <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't look too deep into it, but that one machine gun that, that, that his partner keeps pulling out and that he uses. Yeah. I, that's not, that, that looks like something out of Robocop. It doesn't even look like, I a, know. <laughs> like a real, <laughs> you know, usable machine gun. Yeah. There is a, uh, we've referenced it before on the show, but there is a, um, a website out there, the, uh, what is it? The, the internet firearms movie mm -hmm. database or something like that, where you can yeah. go in type up any movie and it will tell you like the, the artillery that was used for this one. To be perfectly honest, Doug, I didn't really care. I didn't feel right, the need right. to, <laughs> to go. I'm sure you can, uh, in my forte, the, uh, the Rocky movies, we don't have a whole lot of opportunity to look up firearms. So yeah. <laughs> I don't use that, that website all that often. Well, that's an excellent segue. Uh, before we start discussing direct action, um, tell us a little bit about your show. Now, I will first admit, I did not, when I, when I started this podcast up, I really didn't even know that the whole movies by minute uh, uh, subgenre of podcasts, if you will, was even a thing. And when you uh, graciously invited me on your show um, to discuss the first opening minutes of 
or it was Rocky three we discussed, right? Yeah, it was the first yeah. uh, opening uh, few minutes of Rocky three. I will I will say when you dissect a film one minute at a time, my God, you notice so much little minutia that that, that goes into uh, the making of the film. So uh, so that was a ton of fun. It, it, I'm assuming you've always been a huge fan of the Rocky films, hence why you decided to explore every single one of the Rocky movies one minute at a time. Yeah, you know, I was, uh, yes, I, I have always been a fan of the Rocky films. I was, I was young, too young to miss the uh, first two Rockies to see, like, you know, in theaters. But I, I definitely saw Rocky three in theaters uh, in 1982. And that was like, it, it was right up my alley. Rocky three, Rocky four, right after it, you know, seeing Rocky four as like a, in 85 as a, as a eight, uh, seven year old kid. It was perfect for me, full of action. And I didn't care too much for Rocky 1 and 2 because they were slower pace and they were more think pieces. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, I didn't really get to appreciate Rocky, the original Rocky, and, you know, for some years later. But once once I really was able to watch it with, uh, you know, with, with uh, grown-up eyes, not even grown-up, I was probably a teenager when I really kind of got hit by what – what the focus of what the point of the original Rocky was and man, it, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks and I'm like, wow, that this is, this is inspirational, man. And I don't think anybody would argue that Rocky is one of the most inspirational characters in cinema history. Most definitely. Most definitely. Well, your, your show is a ton of fun. Um, I've, uh, like I said, when you asked me to participate in Rocky three, that was a ton of fun. I know that, uh, by the time this goes live, um, I think you're still recording Rocky three, but when can we expect that season to be uploaded? Um, you know, we, I, in the past I have set a, a definite release date and I found myself putting way too much pressure to get the episodes out. So right now we're still open. We have almost 30 episodes. We have 29 episodes recorded. And this being the Thanksgiving week, it'll probably have to wait to continue until next week. But um, we want to get maybe 20 more in the can before we start releasing. So probably with the holidays coming up, man, who knows? Probably towards the end of December. Well, right on. Well, I mean, you're the uh, you're the Rocky Balboa guy, and so mm-hmm. I have to ask your experience with Dolph Lundgren over the years. Have you, uh, you know, I always like to ask this question to all the guests, but yeah, have you been a fan? What have you seen? Uh, where where do you stand? Uh, I loved, I loved his character in Rocky Four. Um, you know, the 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 big menacing machine like kind of guy. That when I I saw him, I think the Punisher might have been the next thing that I actually saw him in. And I was like, wow, he's he's like a real person that moves and talks like a real person. Uh, which, you know, I mean, if your only introduction to him is Rocky IV, you, you know, you don't, you don't, you can't imagine that. Um, but uh, probably only the big ones, probably the Punisher and um, Masters of the Universe. I don't think I really seen him in much after that. Okay, so this being one of the uh, direct-to-video films, so was this, I mean, can can we say that this is probably the first of his kind of direct-to-video output that you've uh, that you've ever had the pleasure of seeing? Yes. Yes, I would say. I would say so. Okay. Well, you know, and I, I will say right now, actually, I think you and I were talking about this when you and I were emailing and messaging back, when, uh, you know, prior to our recording of this, you know, but I will say um, regarding this particular film, I would say this is a comeback for him in a sense, well before he really had 
his full on comeback in 2010, thanks to the Expendables. And then again, last year, mm -hmm. thanks to, uh, uh, Creed 2 and Aquaman. You know, if you've been following the show, uh, with regard to uh, Mr. Lundgren's career around this period, he was firmly, you know, in place in the world of direct-to-video, particularly, obviously, direct-to-video action. But a lot of the films mm. that he had been doing, I'll be honest with you right now, Doug, if you go back through uh, any of the previous episodes, it's been a bit of a rough go, actually. Mm. Uh, <laughs> because a lot of his films, I mean, despite having some ambition with them, they just, none of them really turned out great. And so with this particular film, this is, I like to call this one, it's, Back to basics. I mean, it's it's very, very basic. It's, you know, good cop taking on a, a team of dirty cops. I mean, that's pretty much what it is, what the premise is at its um at its core. But having said that, this film, I, I, like I said, it's it's a comeback in, in, in sorts for him because he's going back to basics. He looks great in the film. I mean, I, I will say right now, uh, the guy has always been in shape, but here in particular, He's even more lean before. I mean, if you look at mm -hmm. his previous films and then you look at this one, I mean, his face is more defined and he looks a little older, but I mean, he's, he's extremely lean. He's also sporting this long shaggy hair in the film. I am convinced mm -hmm. and maybe I'm wrong with this. I don't know, but I'm convinced that when Dolph did this particular film, this came at a point in his career, where he was resetting and attempting to turn his entire career around. Like I said earlier, he had some fairly negative, negative experiences on previous films where they just didn't turn out to be the films that he signed on for. I think here, while the story is fairly generic, um, this is Dolph going back to basics. And I think this is where he decided to take charge, start reinventing his cinematic efforts. And he started doing this with his overall appearance. Yeah. You know, on uh, when you were joining us on Rocky Minute, <clears throat> Um, I, I kind of said how, how much fun it must be to, e even with the bad movies to, to really get, get deep with those, because even the bad movies could be fun, you know, to, to kind of poke right. holes. It, you know, it's, you, you, you make light of it. Right. Um, right. but not, not that this is, is a bad movie. I mean, cinematically there are some issues, you know, um, but I, I really enjoyed it. I liked the story. I thought it was a great story. I thought the characters were great. But I wanted it's to go fun. into the movie. Yeah. yeah, totally. I wanted to go into this like with an open mind. And I, I don't want to rip the flaws in the movie making aspect of it, you know, because I mean, we could sit here all day and do that. Um, I, I just like I want to comment on the procedural police stuff that I noticed, which, you know, we talked <laughs> about before, um, which I don't know, may or may not be entertaining to your listeners. But, hey, that's what we do. Yeah, well, and I mean, so if we look at the uh, if we look at the film and just the the overall crux of the film, um, the film is titled Direct Action, and that is in reference to the Direct Action Unit. So I guess we can go right here, right now, um, <laughs> with you, Doug. So if we follow the film, uh, because they say it at the beginning of the film, the Direct Action Unit, the DAU, as uh, we're going to be referring to it as the for the duration of the conversation, um, it's a special unit of the Metropolitan Police Department that focuses on gang violence, drugs, and prostitution. It is comprised of highly decorated police officers who are untouchable. Uh, and mm -hmm. this is all told at the beginning of the film. The, the thing that I think is uh, interesting is this is very much like some of, pre uh, some of Dolph's previous films. This is a Canadian production. Uh, this is mm -hmm. obviously filmed in Canada. But what I think is, uh, is, is kind of humorous about it is the film fails to provide an exact location for where this takes place. Is it L.A.? Yeah, no. I was going to ask Detroit? you that. 
Yeah, is it Detroit? Is it Chicago? No, none of these. All that we're told is that Gannon works for the Metropolitan Police Department. <laughs> well, we don't see any uniformed officers. Usually the patch or the badge will tell you where you're, you are. But um, yeah, we don't, we don't see that. Uh, what we do see uh, is some Ontario license plates. So I guess yep. we can deduce <laughs> that it's in Canada. Well, and I mean, are, are you familiar with, is there such a thing as a specific, you know, unit that is designed to um, wrangle these these areas of the law of drug violence, drug, or excuse me, gang violence, drugs, prostitution, um, the DAU? Is there anything that, like that that you're familiar with? Yeah, actually, I I would think most police departments have some sort of uh, unit that's you know that's that's meant to to tackle those specific areas of of crime um we in the police department in new jersey that i work um i'm a small uh, municipal police department but we have a two man unit called the special investigations unit um siu that they do they do narcotics they do gang um gang stuff although you know a small department we don't have a, a huge issue with that which is why we it's only a two man unit but uh, yeah, I would think most police departments, you know, your bigger cities would have bigger ones. Uh, this actually, uh, I don't know how deep you looked into this, but this was based on a real unit in the LAPD in the 1990s. Oh, that's um, right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, that unit was called the crash unit. Uh, it was like community something against uh, street communities, something against street hoodlums. Hoodlums, they called it. Um, it was in the LAPD. It was like their anti-gang unit. And uh, it was a, a corrupt, a deeply corrupt unit that, that led to this huge scandal where 70, more than 70 police officers were implicated in some sort of misconduct, like shootings and beatings and evidence planting and, you know, and garbage like that, that you, you really only see in the movies. Uh, yeah. But there was a few, a few of the heavy hitters in this crash unit I read were, um, were supposedly directly involved in the uh, Biggie Smalls shooting. Yeah. So yeah. So so these guys, these guys were were seriously dirty back there in uh, L.A. Well, you know, it, it's kind of similar in a sense because yeah, I mean, well, if if you look at the the credits for the film, um, the director of the movie, Sidney J. Fury, who actually Dolph had worked with previously on, um. Uh, the previous film detention. Uh, but yeah, it said that he came up with the story. So yeah, I think, uh, I think he probably obviously read some of the headlines and you know, that that's how he kind of got, got this idea for the story. It's interesting mm -hmm. because you mentioned um, the SIU. I remember um, if we want to reference two other cop films, uh, the movie extreme prejudice with Scott Glenn and then dark blue with uh, Kurt Russell. I know both of mm -hmm. those films, um, those cops worked for uh, a unit by the name of SIS, Special mm. Investigation Sections, which kind of did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. See, so, I mean, it's not, I guess the, the whole corrupt nature of it is kind of a, a movie trope. Um, mm -hmm. be because, you know, as far as I know, my SIU guys aren't on the take and they're, they're not <laughs> setting up, <laughs> setting up suspects by planting evidence or, you know, beating guys. But, um, otherwise, you know, I guess you wouldn't have a movie if not for the corrupt nature of it. Right. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, and we're going to keep coming back to this whole idea, but yeah, the, the film is fun. And I think mm -hmm. by the opening titles, you pretty much know what you're getting into. I was curious what you thought of the opening titles. It's basically a montage 
of all the action sequences in the film, but it's intercut with the titles and then set to some generic rap score. I'm assuming something mm-hmm. that was uh, taken from the public domain. Uh, <laughs> what did you think of the opening title sequence? I can't remember where I saw it before, um, but there was, I did see a movie where the opening sequence is just um, like small, like one, two second snapshots of scenes you're going to see in the movie. But I, I, I remember seeing that, like, why are they showing us parts of the movie already? Uh, yeah. Things that we're about to see. But the the intercut, like uh, title cards with the, you know, um, the uh, director's name and everything, uh, that kind of had like a... 70s exploitation film feel to me i don't know yeah um i don't yeah i mean the like the pastel color of the of the you know the the, the screen there with the the title cards over it um yeah i don't know it, it just had like that that's real old school 70s feel to me well, it's very similar. There's a film that came out a few years ago with uh, martial artist Scott Atkins. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with the work of Scott Atkins or not, um, but he did a movie called Close Range. And the opening title sequence is extremely similar to that one. Um, okay. Same kind of thing. Exploitation, 70s throwback, if you will, um, which, I mean, in the end works because I feel like this film is... I mean, I wouldn't even say desperately trying, but it is an amazing throwback to like the 80s, you know, those 80s cop action movies. I mean, that's clearly what this is going for, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I think they capture pretty well. The, uh, I mean, in the cold opening, they have like this, uh, they're in the brothel, right? And they, it's Mm -hmm. very red. It's very like red light district kind of, kind of feel. And that, yeah, that. I don't know. It felt eighties to me. Like yeah. 48 yeah. hours style, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, and in, in this particular film, um, we already kind of talked about it, but yeah, Dolph plays the character of Sergeant Frank Gannon. And the film pretty much goes through a single day on a routine shift for him. However, on this particular day, Dolph is partnered with a detective trainee, uh, the good looking Billy Ross, uh, played by actress Polly Shannon. And she's essentially Dolph's wingman throughout the film. I mean, it's kind of going with the whole uh, training day, uh, you know, angle, if you will. You know, all takes place in a single day. And we have the rookie who's under the experienced veteran's wing. Only in this case, mm-hmm. um, the experienced veteran is not dirty like like he was in training day. Um, but I kind of liked this dynamic that they were uh, that they were going with. Yeah, I thought, uh, I, I mean, that's that's another sort of trope or like a fish out of water kind of feel with uh yeah uh R- ross you know uh officer ross his trainee um kind of gets it gets into this into this uh situation she's in over her head she doesn't really she it's kind of eat or be eaten you know what i mean she she doesn't really right. have a chance to to learn she kind of gets just thrown right into it and uh and she's got to act which, you know, will she rise to the occasion? Will she not? And stay tuned. Well, and I mean, I don't want to jump all the way to the end right now, but that's one of the small mm-hmm. gripes I have about this film is that they link them romantically. I was thinking, couldn't they have mm-hmm. just made them partners, you know, from the beginning of the film to the end of the film, they're just partners. That was kind of uh, cliche and, and cheesy how at the end, you know, the, the, the film ends with them on a nice date. Yeah. I'm like, come <laughs> on, man. Yeah, it, unnecessary for sure. I mean... You know, it, it seemed a little forced because there was no, there wasn't really any any inclination that they were uh, 
they were aiming towards that throughout the movie. Well, you so know, and the, enforced. Well, and the mm. other thing that that I have to I have to throw out there. This is one of the things that has always dug. To be perfectly honest, always bothered me about the film. And I was talking about it with a buddy the other day, and he was like, eh, it didn't really bother me that much, which is fine. But I was curious where you stand on it. I am not a huge fan of the wardrobe in this film, particularly particularly Lundgren's wardrobe. I mean, I get that he's a detective, and detectives, I guess, are allowed to wear common clothing. Uh, but I mean, assuming we can talk about that in your experience. I know that this is a fairly cliche trope in cop movies where the tough cop pretty much wears whatever he wants. Whatever. So I get, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I get that. But I have to ask, though, as a cop yourself, have you ever seen a detective wear a red windbreaker hoodie and a T-shirt with the number 57 on it? I really want to speak <laughs> to the <laughs> wardrobe person in this. Why they? I mean, I will admit. Dolph looks great in it. The blue jeans and mm-hmm. the t-shirt, the, you know, the, the yeah. you know, that kind of ringer t-shirt with the number 57. I'd like to know what the significance mm-hmm. is of the number 57, but I'm obviously looking into that way more. Um, but then, yeah, he has that, that Adidas Trek hoodie. Um, he looks great in it, but again, as a cop, I, 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 I'm, I'm a little bit lost. What did you, uh, did you notice in it? Did it stand out to you like it did me, I guess? It, it stood out in, in uh, I have a thought about movie wise and real world wise. Um, okay. Movie wise, <laughs> you know, I mean, for for Dolph Lundgren, if you're going to be kicking ass, you want to be comfortable, right? Um, right. <laughs> the, the the thing that bugged me about it, the way he dressed didn't bother me. The thing that bugged me is once he became a wanted man. I mean, you might as well be walking down the street with, with a big billboard saying, "I'm the guy you're looking for," because that red right. uh, windbreaker, that Adidas style windbreaker. I mean, you know, you got to lose that at some point, but he, he keeps going back to it. Like he'll, he'll go kick somebody's butt with his, just his t-shirt on, but then he puts the, the sweatshirt back on over it, you know, to continue. You know, it's not like we're confused as to who the lead, who Dolph Lundgren is in this movie. So you don't need to, you don't need to really put a flag on him like this big red windbreaker. Um, I know. Again, not that it bothered me, but. I did say, like, if if you're trying to hide from people that are looking for you, you probably want to use softer tones (laughs) so you don't stand out as much on the street. Uh, But real world-wise, our SIU is the only unit in my police department that is allowed to wear pretty much whatever they want because they're they're not so much undercover because we're a small town, so everybody in town knows who they are. But you're doing a lot of – a lot of like on the street work with with like the county task force and state police and 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 DEA and stuff like that so they they allow them to be uh to dress down as much as they want they're allowed to have facial hair they're the only unit in the department that's allowed that like our even our regular detective bureau they're a plain clothes unit but they have to wear you know a shirt and tie in the in the spring and summertime and like a collared shirt in the winter or vice versa um yeah, so they and, and you know our, our regular detective bureau has to be clean shaven. So our SIU, they have a, a lot more leeway on what they can wear. So it didn't surprise me. Okay, okay. Well, I I, I challenge you then. Maybe when you report back to work, uh, talk to the SIU guys and say, "Hey, look, I watched this really cool movie, Direct Action, and um, where's your wind, your red windbreaker hoodie? Please, <laughs> to show them a picture. They say, would you ever wear this? Yeah." And uh, maybe I don't know uh, what a, a number six, a shirt with a sixty-two oh, yeah. on it. 
57. <laughs> so. well, one guy wears a, uh, you know, I haven't seen him in a while, but he, he used to wear like football jerseys all the time. So, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Interesting. God, I haven't worn a football jersey since I was in middle school. How sad is that, right? <laughs> yeah. No, it's the same. Me too. <laughs> um, well, you know, you talked about Dolph being comfortable as he's kicking ass. And man, the within the first hour of Gannon's shift, he reports to two calls. I, I think mm-hmm. this is interesting here. The first two calls that he reports to are essentially just plot devices to help flesh out his character. Um, mm-hmm. His first call is at a restaurant where the Afghani owner is being shaken down by some street toughs. Um, and the other is a meeting with the lead antagonist of the film, uh, Captain Stone, who is the uh, who's the captain of the direct action unit. Uh, regarding the call to the restaurant, this is a fun scene. I mean, it's really just there. I mean, look, they include this scene, and they need to, you know. Um, this is screenwriting run 101 here. It's really just there to establish that Gannon is quite effective at his job, as well as the fact that he knows his fair share of martial arts. Um, the thing I love about Dolph in these scenes is just how confident he is. And the way he dispatches of these toughs is very similar to the way it really reminded me of Steven Seagal. If you remember Steven Seagal yeah, in yeah. the golden period, those early films that he did, uh, Marked for Death, Hard to Kill, Above the Law, all those. I, I The thing about Seagal is when he walked into a room, no one, no one, not one single person stood a chance against Seagal's <laughs> Fist of Fury. It was great. And I think Dolph is employing that same kind of swagger. So it's really cool to see. Yeah. He doesn't, uh, you know, not a bead of sweat on his, on his forehead. You know, it's, he's very no. controlled, you know, very confident. Yeah. That definitely comes through. I mean, even in the situation where this one, this one guy pulls a knife on him where, you know, in, in police work would justify the use of deadly force. If somebody threatens you or lunges at you with a knife, but you know, he just hand to hand, disarms him and uh and takes him out which is remarkable well, even, yeah well and even the scene when Dolph I don't know if you picked up on this or not do you notice this or not Doug but even the mm-hmm. scene when Dolph first enters the restaurant and he kind of leans against the wall to survey the action just lets you know that this is a cop who exudes cool um it also helps mm-hmm. this is we're going to be talking about this but it also helps that he's constantly chewing gum that's another trope oh my to like God. That's yeah. another trope that movies like to do to kind of let you know that your hero is a rebel. But yeah, Dolph is not only is he a badass, but I mean, he just I don't think he gets punched once in this film, does he? Hmm. He gets surprised uh, once or twice. Um, Wait, he just get tased. You're right. Yeah, he gets tased and uh, and uh, and one guy like kicks a gun out of his hand. But you're right. I don't think he really gets touched. Yeah, that, that's a good question. I guess we'll have to uh, explore that as we go forward. Going into this restaurant part, though, the the way he takes out the first guy who's like leaning against the door who blocks him from going in, yeah, like when he just he he knocks he's the guy's leaning against the door with his arm, he knocks the arm down and slams the guy against the wall like that. That's just a beautiful, beautiful little piece of uh, of action right there. I, like I I, I, I want to try this on somebody. <laughs> well, and it's a wonderfully choreographed uh, uh, scene. I mean, because. Dolph is, I mean, he is a, uh, a multiple black belt in um, Kyukushin karate, you know, I mean, so the guy knows his stuff. And unfortunately, um, in his films, I mean, you can look there. There is a scene in uh, a couple scenes in I Come in Peace and then um, 
The Punisher, he uses a little bit of martial arts. I would say probably the film that he uses probably the most martial arts is Showdown Little Tokyo, but it's still mm-hmm. not a heck of a lot in that film. So uh, me personally, again, going along with my theory of how this was a comeback of sorts for him where he's resetting his career in a sense, um, it only makes sense that he is going to be in this, you know, basic cop movie that uh, this cop is going to be using some uh, some martial arts. And those uh, those high karate kicks that he throws in this mm-hmm. film just look awesome. I mean, they, they are they are really well done. Yeah, you could tell that that's a trained individual to throw kicks like that. In fact, in this first this first action scene, it really made me wish that there was more more hand to hand stuff. Um you know, that where he could really display it. I mean, there's, there's plenty, but I just, I, you know, left me wanting more. I really wanted to see more of it. Well, I mean, in his second meeting, so of, of, like we said, his first meeting is there to establish, I mean, in case it was really ever in question that, that Dolph was a badass, um, that, that, that he was a, you know, he was super cop, I guess we can call it. His second meeting is with uh, Captain Stone. And so mm-hmm. Stone is played by actor Conrad Dunn, who previously, I don't know if you've checked it out or not, um, but he previously squared off against Dolph almost 10 years earlier in the film Silent Trigger. Um, Have you seen Silent Trigger? No, I haven't. Okay, Silent Trigger is actually, uh, I'd say, one of Dolph's best movies. But apparently, so this is where we get the main conflict of the film. Uh, Stone has gotten wind that Ganon is planning on testifying against the DAU, and Stone is attempting to intimidate Ganon to kind of get him to uh, stand down on saying anything incriminating. Um, but Ganon is hellbent on making it to the courthouse by 5 p.m. to testify. And as Ganon tells Stone, uh, you know, he's a cop who's been sworn to protect and stir. Excuse me. He's a cop who's been sworn to protect and serve. And Stone and members of the DAU are guilty of all sorts of heinous crimes, including theft, extortion, murder, etc. Yeah, I I was finding myself at this point in the movie um, wondering if Frank at one point was ever involved in any of that uh, illegal stuff. Uh, But it doesn't seem like there's there's no inclination that he was. But isn't that wouldn't that be like one of the vetting um, processes of a unit like this? If if you have a guy leading a unit like this that's corrupt as all get out, and you're recruiting guys, wouldn't you? see if they're if they're on your team to prevent something like this yeah you would think because i mean and they don't really fully lean into it but the the dau the dau unit consists of well it's dolph it's dolph's partner um the the one the the family man gentleman who we're going to be uh talking about here in a bit obviously captain stone there's the one dude who has the uh, the long hair and the goatee and then the, then another guy so this unit consists of five dudes is that right yeah i i thought at one point he said seven oh, um, was it seven oh okay he at one point uh stone says seven yeah cuz they wanted to split the money he said what's uh 50 million mm. divided by seven right that's right yeah yeah i i, I almost forgot about that exchange there so <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting because we talked about this on um, on our recording of Detention. You know, I will say regarding director Sid Fury, I mean, the guy has had a uh, an experienced career. But the thing I think that is interesting about him is we talked about the wardrobe already um, regarding Dolph's character. But, you know, he did the same thing with Detention where he dresses the antagonists in such a fashion just to let you know that these are bad guys. 
you know, it, it's, <laughs> it's like not like the, yeah, it's not like the actors are going to be able to, you know, really let you know through their acting that they are bad. Oh no. With mm-hmm. regard to Sidney Fury, he is going to dress the the villains up like supervillains or like villains just to kind of drive home the point that these are the bad guys. And you mentioned it already. Yeah, we know immediately that Stone is bad because he wears black leather jacket, mm-hmm. hair slicked mm-hmm. back. He is unshaven. I think he even has a little necklace. Um, you know, like I said, just like the tension, the director and costume designers, they're not very coy about letting you know okay, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. It's pretty yeah, much yeah. <laughs> They got to paint you a picture. Uh, I actually really like Stone's character in this. Like you really get okay. a feel that he's a, a bad dude. I think uh, Conrad Dunn, he, he did a good job acting it. I Overall, I, I, I love the Stone character in this. He plays He plays slimy and wormy really mm-hmm. well, doesn't he? Yeah, like he'll he'll flash a smile at you and believe he's he's your pal, but at the mm-hmm. same time when he when he turns on that, you know, don't mess with me uh persona, you you buy it. You buy it that he's a bad dude. Yeah, and if you if you see Silent Trigger while he is the bad guy in that one, um this villain, well actually both villains have different layers to them, but yeah, they're both two different villains because while he is a, a little slippery and slimy in um in Silent Trigger, it's uh, I'd say in this one he's more kind of like you said he's more like your buddy. I mean, because I will mm-hmm. admit, as the viewer, the scene where he's uh, you know trying to convince Dolph you know to you know kind of go on their side and that he would you mm-hmm. know promote him or whatever. I will admit, as a viewer, I'm kind of thinking, eh, he doesn't seem like a bad guy. Does Dolph really have to testify? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I along with him, you know. <laughs> so as long as you're on his team, he's he could be your best friend. Yeah. Cross them and, you know, they're out to get you. So, <laughs> but later after Ganon makes it perfectly clear of his noble intentions, there, there, there are no shades of gray whatsoever to, uh, to Lundgren's character in this. That's the one thing that I will admit. Um, if we're going to be talking about cop movies, um, another one that I just love is Black Rain with Michael Douglas. I'm sure you're familiar with Black Rain, right? <laughs> I don't, I'm not familiar with Black Rain, no. Oh, you have it? Oh, my goodness. Well, you, you got to check it out. In Black Rain, so the, the protagonist, your hero, if you will, is um, is uh, Michael Douglas's character. And the great thing about that particular character in that film is he has some shades of gray where he was a little dirty in what he had been doing as well. And so mm-hmm. throughout the film, he kind of realizes the error of his ways and starts, you know, kind of... Um, Going through going through that character arc, very similar to a Kurt Russell in Dark Blue, where Kurt Russell is a little dirty, but he again sees the error of his ways and starts taking on members of his own team. I kind of, you know, I mean, again, I liked Dolph in this film, but I kind of think, I mean, would it have killed them to maybe add a little more, uh, a little more depth to this and give his to where his character is not as. Uh, you know, goody two shoes as he is. But then again, I guess yeah. this is a direct to video 90 minute movie. They didn't really want to add too much to that. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, who doesn't like a redemption story? In fact, um, his partner, uh, uh, Ed Grimes, right. Grimes. Um, yeah. he says that, that he knew what was going on and he needed the money. Uh, I, I think he had much more of a story arc than, than Frank Gannon did. You know, yeah. Because he, you can tell he was on the take. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, he, in the end redeemed himself. So I, you know, if you, if you would have given that storyline to Frank, um, 
you know, that, that he was a little dirty, not murdering people because that's, that's kind of like the un, unredeemable line. Not that you're killing anybody, but maybe you're, you're, you know, you're turning a blind eye to certain things and you're collecting money just to line your pockets. Um, I think that could make a good redemption story. And see, that's one of the things I'm glad you brought that up is that's one of the things, if we jump to the end real quick, that's one of the things that, that kind of upset me about this. And look, I, again, I get that this is, this film was made, uh, we didn't talk about this earlier, but this film was made by New Image, who is now Millennium. Millennium is responsible for the Rambo movies and the, the Olympus has fallen movies. So these are, this is a production house that really does not care too much about going, going into deep material mm-hmm. and things. But, you know, that's one of the things as well is, yeah, his his partner admits that uh, he was a little crooked as well and that, you know, he now regrets it and he, he needed the money. But that's one of the things that kind of bugged me is so this guy is a family man. I mean, he's pretty much what he's the Murtaugh equivalent in this film. Yeah, this guy is Murtaugh, but he's gunned down in a shootout. And I thought that was a pretty interesting writing choice here. Because he's gunned down minutes after he confesses to Gannon that he dabbled in some immoral behavior while on the unit. And granted, while he did not kill anyone, he did steal money. And so you kind of have to wonder from the writing standpoint, well, is he killed as punishment for his unethical deeds? Because there was no way he could redeem himself at all either, huh? Yeah, I, I kind of thought that too. And I watched it the first, I watched it twice. Um, one to just kind of get a feel for the movie. And then the second time to really prepare and take notes. And the second time I'm watching it, when he confesses that to Frank, I'm like, does this in like movie, like movie terms, did that right there just sign his death warrant, admitting that he was dirty at one point? And I said to myself, not necessarily because. It's usually like in horror movies, like once the character has sex, then you know they're dead. You know, it's like they, they're they now all of a sudden immoral. But yeah. I, I don't – I he, from the beginning to the end, Grimes is a, a sympathetic character to me. Like you can really – you can feel um, – you can feel that he has passion for the job. When he confesses, you can feel his remorse for the things that he did do. Um, so I don't think that, that once he confesses that he was dirty, that automatically meant he had to die. Um, because I think he could be a little dirty if he said that he was, you know, he was really involved in it and he was killing people back in the, you know, back in the day and, uh, you know, collecting a ton of money and, uh, you know, doing all kinds of dirty things, then maybe, but just taking a little off the top because you needed the money, you wanted to support your family. I don't think, I don't think automatically, uh, signs your death warrant. What I didn't like about the end, him, his, uh, his death was that he gets blown away right in front of his family. Right. Yeah. Write write that a different way, please. Well, yeah. I mean, the the film is paint by numbers. And I feel like that is kind of the uh, that's kind of the level of the script here is they're figuring, okay, well, he was dirty. So he needs to die right away. And like Mm -hmm. you said, the way he gets blown away in front of his family. And then when the next moment we see his family, they're completely happy and they're sitting there just chilling watching the tv because lundgren has testified i mean their their father just died and there's no there's no real uh emotional depth to that and look again i get that <laughs> i'm expecting too much from a 90 minute film that uh premiered direct to video but it's one right. of those things where i was like come on they 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 could have put a little more thought into this right yeah, yeah. And and here I'm doing the thing that I said I wasn't going to do is, you know, rip apart the cinematic issues with it. Um, 
but yeah, I mean that that I was I, I thought was a little little much, um, you know, to have him get shot dead in front of his family like that. That's all. Well, That's all I have to say on that one. Well, and before before that even occurs, before we even get there, so as Lundgren is on his patrol, um, him and uh, and Billy Ross, uh, his car mm-hmm. breaks down where he is tased and kidnapped by the DAU. We, we kind of mentioned that already. But mm-hmm. Ross is able to save him and dispatch of these dirty cops. I love how she's able to use that uh, Robocop machine gun, like you mentioned. Yeah. And she pulls that out multiple times in this film. And she uses that like it is no problem. She looks cool blasting it, I guess, right? She does. And she she did a good job controlling it, too, because that looks like it's a pretty <laughs> high-powered machine gun. So she, she did okay controlling it. Yeah, no, I was I was just gonna say that they they got split up, right? Because so he he had to he's he's on a mission to get evidence on Stone, and you know he he doesn't feel like tra- uh, trailing around a, a trainee is really gonna help him do that. So he drops her off, and then she decides to follow him. That's how she notices uh, right. him get kidnapped. Yeah, and and uh, she grabs a machine gun from one of the the cops, yeah. right? Because yeah. somehow the. Yeah, you has uh, this impressive uh, artillery at their disposal. Yeah, yeah, and they leave it in the car (laughs) (laughs) that she's snooping around. They just leave that machine gun in the car. So at this point in the film, Ross is—I mean, she's pretty much um, she's at Lundgren's side. I mean, and they they need each other. And so um, what the DAU does is they set what they set Gannon and Ross up for um, the murders of the dirty cops. And so mm-hmm. what happens is we find um, Frank Gannon and Ross, they're now on the run from the law themselves. Um, again, everything in this film is occurring over the course of a single day. Um, like I said earlier, very similar in a sense to Training Day, just much sillier. And again, with all those Canadian production values. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The, um, I see. It would be helpful if we know what city that they're, that they're in because <laughs> – Stone it's the puts out a, city. Oh, the metropolitan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you figure if it's a city, it's a pretty big area that, that we're looking. Um, he puts out an APB on these two for, for murdering cops, which, I mean, if, if that was the case, that you would have all hands on deck um, trying to flush these people out. Um, but, I mean, it, it just see, it's too convenient that they find the car – um, in front of, uh, uh, what was it? In front of the brothel or in front, where did they find uh, the van? Oh, in front of the restaurant, right? right. Uh, the Afghani guy's restaurant. They found the car there. Um, you know, it just seemed too convenient that, that, uh, that they're hot on their tail. Well, and it's very similar. I mean, because what comes next is Gannon and Ross are protecting a witness who not only happened to witness one of the DAU's crimes, but who coincidentally is also the daughter of the restaurant owner earlier in the film. Again, complete mm-hmm. plot convenience. It's kind of reminded me going back to, I didn't think we'd be referencing Steven Seagal as much uh, as we have yeah. in the episode. Um, but he did a film called the glimmer man, which um, where again, he plays mm-hmm. a tough cop. Are you familiar with the glimmer man? That one I saw. Yes. Okay. So if you remember the thing that always bugged me about the glimmer man was at the beginning of the film, he and Keenan Ivory Wayans are partnered up and they go on a routine call where a, uh, uh, a kid is um, threatening suicide at a school. And then we find out later on in the film that that kid just so happened to be related to the larger case at hand 
I'm kind of think of really like <laughs> that's really convenient, isn't it? And so it only makes sense in this one that uh, yeah, the the daughter. This is the daughter. The witness here is the daughter of the restaurant owner who we saw earlier in the film. Uh, yeah, I, 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 plot convenience, coincidence. I don't know what you want to call it, but uh, it, it all works together and it's uh, it, it gets tied up pretty neatly there, right? Yeah, I, I actually like the detail that the restaurant owner is trying to push his daughter onto Frank. Um, you know, know. St- trying to sell her like, oh, she'd be a great wife. She'd be a great wife. Meanwhile, she's a prostitute in a brothel <laughs> at night. <laughs> Great wife. Well, huh? and and they never really okay. So obviously the DAU is bad, um, and they never really. I mean, they tell us what it is, but I mean, they don't set it up more at the beginning. But their latest dirty activity is they're getting involved in a big drug deal with a local drug lord, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't specifically state that they all they really talked about was the money, the fifty million dollars, and and until we exactly. meet the uh, the the Asian. You know, the Asian kingpin. Uh, we don't even know that it's about drugs. <laughs> so. <laughs> right? I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't mind the, the whole drug angle. I just wish, you know, they would have kind of stated it more clearly. And so what ensues through the rest of the film, the, the duration of the film, is pretty much a massive shootout. Uh, we get one massive shootout that incurs in a warehouse. Of course, mm-hmm. where else? That's an action movie trope. Mm-hmm. You're going to have your action sequence in a warehouse. Um, Absolutely. Robocop. So so there you go. Um, and then we get another uh, massive shootout that ensues on the road. This is where Billy Ross, the detective trainee, is shot and injured uh, by the assistant attorney general, who um, we, we later find out Dolph, was, uh, Dolph considered this guy on his side. He thought that this guy was good, but it is actually on Captain Stone's payroll. Um, Again, not a huge surprise here this turn. I mean, while he is dressed um, like an attorney general or like a uh, like, mm-hmm. like a dude of, of the law who practices, you know, who goes to court each day, the way they are telegraphing it, it's pretty much from the get-go, you know that um, this guy's dirty as well, right? Yeah, I was thinking that too, that right the, from the second you meet him, you know, you could tell he's a jerk. But so so really, there, there was no – in every scene that he, he's in up until – the point where he he's talking to Stone on the phone, um, the, you know, they they make him come out, uh, come off like a real a hole. I know. Uh, why? Yeah, really telegraphing it. Why don't you kind of lead us along a little bit? Make him think that that uh, make us think that he's on Frank's side. That he's really he wants to get this Stone guy instead of telegraphing him as a, a bad guy as well. What is with? I mean, we we mentioned it already, so I, we we gotta. Pay some attention to it real quick. What is with the Gannon's chewing of gum in this film? The film Ugh. really likes to dwell on his constant chewing of gum. And they even make a point of having Ross right before she goes into that uh, that final shootout. Um, they're getting ready to go into another meeting with Stone and his men. She asks Gannon, I think I'm ready for that gum here. What kind of gum is yeah. this that they're chewing in, <laughs> in this film? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I actually counted. I got uh, ten incidents. Oh, did you really? <laughs> ten incidences of him putting gum in his mouth, and uh, it's twice before that he asks Ross if she wants gum, and she says no, and he tells her you don't know what you're missing. I know. Uh, what I what I didn't write down, which I'm curious now, 
is every time he puts a piece of gum in his mouth, is that before he goes into a tense situation? Is that like his calming, uh, you know, his, his calming method? You know what? I think it is because if you, if you remember, um, right as he and stone get in that, uh, that final battle in the uh, parking lot of the courthouse, right after he shoots stone, what does he do? Mm -hmm. He tosses his gum on him. His, yeah, he yeah. Spits his gum out because I mean he he already had battle, so he doesn't need to keep chewing the gum, right? <laughs> it only makes sense yeah, that he tosses but, his gum on him. <laughs> and maybe that is so. When she does say, you know, I'll take a piece of that gum now, it was right before the big shootout. So so maybe it was his calming method. <laughs> so yeah, but you know, okay. So with our lead bad guy with Stone being now out of the picture. Ganon is able to make his hearing just in time as he is mm -hmm. bloodied and has his arm in a sling. I, I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know how practical this is, but I feel like cinematically it is a cool scene of Dolph stepping into court, all bloodied, all beat up yeah. with, a, with his arm in a sling, stepping on the stand, getting ready to testify. It, it's ridiculous, sure, but it looks cool, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you, you know, you want to know how bad these guys are? Look what they did to me all day. <laughs> it's, it is like, uh, yeah, it's, I, I did like that, you know, with, I mean, I can imagine the jury and everybody in court just looking at him like, what the hell yeah, happened exactly. to this guy? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, but it was, it was a good touch. I like it. So with the DAU being dissolved, uh, Gannon visits Ross in the hospital and they make plans for a nice dinner together, uh, which we do get to see. And this is an interesting artistic touch from the director here. Um, we get to see their dinner together in a few black and white freeze frames right before the credits roll. Yeah, over some kind of... Uh electronic dance music, you know, it was like, I, th I actually thought it was going to be like a nightclub the way the music sets it up, but <laughs> they just go to that Afghani restaurant. <laughs> uh, yeah. With the, like the snapshots just in, you know, the black and white snapshots of them out to dinner. It was, that was odd. It was odd. Yeah. For sure. Well, okay. So with the film closed, um, I, I will say right now, Doug, I'm glad that you had fun with this one. Um, like I said, I know it's not exactly high art um, and I don't, I don't think this film is going to uh, uh, be one that is discussed and ingrained in our uh, lexicon like the Rocky franchise is. But I'm curious, Doug, I'd like to do two recommends. OK, mm -hmm. so one as a film in general and then one as a Dolph Lundgren film. So for, as someone who has not seen a heck of a lot of Dolph, but who has seen a lot of films, um, where would you where would you place this particular film? What do you have to say? Uh, man, if you're looking for like a, uh, like a quick, highly digestible, you know, fun kind of, uh, uh, goofy, I don't want to say goofy, but you know, if you want something quick in and out that's entertaining and you know, you, you don't really have to get too deep thinking about it. I, I definitely recommend it. Um, you have, you just have to look past the, you know, the, the, the questionable artistic choices and the you know, the directing, some of the directing choices, but, um, I, I recommend it. I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it two times all the way through. Uh, it's not going to stick with you. I mean, if you watch it, you know, you're not going to be thinking about it six months later saying, man, I really got to go back to that. But if you have 90 minutes to waste and you want to get in a, a quality movie, I, yeah, go for it. 
Well said. Well said. Well, you know, me personally, um, for my recommend, I would say yes on both fronts. Like I said earlier, this is a comeback film for Dolph before he mm-hmm. really even had a full on theatrical comeback, uh, both in 2010, thanks to the Expendables, and then last year with Cree uh, 2 and Aquaman. Yeah. While this is a direct to video uh, movie and the Canadian production team makes this resemble a TV movie at times, um, mm-hmm. it is heavy on action and Dolph kicks major ass throughout. Uh, he transforms his appearance, literally, and he delivers plenty of martial arts, more, I would argue, than he did in Showdown a Little Tokyo. Uh, the action also gets fairly brutal at times, which uh, which is mm-hmm. pretty pretty interesting to see. Um, yet at the same time, it also has a really fun tone to it as well. Uh, I think this is a film that knows that it's silly and is very much aware of its influences uh, you know, being those 90s cop action movies that were popular back in the day. Uh, direct action, I think, wears those proudly on its sleeve or more specifically, maybe on its badge. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. Nice. Um, but Dolph is back to doing what we know he can do and what we enjoy seeing him do. And despite a few lackluster films that came before this one, direct action, I think, is the film that put Dolph back on the right track and gave him the opportunity to start delivering solid action films once again. No, I was going to say it's it's really um, unfair to, to Dolph because he's never the problem, I don't think, in, in any of his movies. I think there's an alternate universe somewhere where where he's like the world's Arnold Schwarzenegger because yeah. he he could totally – have that kind of action career that that Arnold had throughout the eighties, and because he, he he's I mean he I think some of his best acting I've seen is in the Expendables, because his character in the Expendables is tremendous. I love his character in in uh, the Expendables and the Expendables too. Yeah, no, he gets the best character in those films. I feel. I mean, at the end of the day, in Expendables one, he is the character who you want to see more of, which mm-hmm. I think, which I yeah. think is awesome. You know, with regard to, you know, his films that he put out in this kind of direct video era, if you will, these films may not have the biggest budget, um, but for mm. being in the business for as long as Dolph has, especially um, looking, working in these smaller independent films, I think Dolph learned, especially around the time of uh, direct action, 2004, I think Dolph learned quite a few tricks of the trade and used that knowledge wisely in his future endeavors. I think basically he knows how to get the most bang for your buck. Uh, which he mm-hmm. proved on his next couple films because his follow-up picture to this one, I don't know if you knew this or not, but as soon as he finished this one, um, this is where Dolph started stepping behind the camera and started mm-hmm. delivering, I would say, some of his best movies being The Defender and then The Russian Specialist. So while it is silly and while it is pretty cheesy, sure, I think this is one of the films that we have to thank for making Dolph relevant again and allowing him to put forth some of his best his best work. Yeah, again, I, 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 he was not the problem in this movie at all. You know, you, you mentioned the production stuff, and and like I said, some of the directing choices, like some of the uh, some of the scenes are clunky, and I, I blame the director. I don't blame the actors in that. I mean, also, there, I don't think there's any Academy Award-winning actors in this, um, <laughs> in this film either, but uh, man, I mean, you, you could see what he does when he's put with with Stallone, when he's put with a great cast, uh, that, that he really shines. Um, you know, I mentioned the Expendables before, but also in, in Creed, like his his uh, him revisiting his his uh, Drago character, like he is a great actor. Yeah. I don't think he got a fair shake throughout most of his career, though. 
Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Well, Doug, I, I knew that you'd be the right fit for this one um, as soon as you and I got together. So uh, I do appreciate it. I had a ton of fun. And I, I, if anything, I hope this, uh, you know, allowed you to see more of what uh, what Dolph has out there. So please um, check out. I mean, obviously, I know you saw this on either uh, Amazon Prime or Tubi TV. Mm -hmm. But if you look at those, pretty much all of his films from this direct -to video era are available on there. So please check them out. There's um, there's a few that are not so great, but then there's quite a few diamonds in the rough. So check them out. Well, I'll go to you for the recommendations, but after seeing this, you know, when I do have those, those uh, 90 minutes to spare, I'm, I'm going to hit you up for uh, for recommendation. <laughs> there's I, so I'm much content out there. I know <laughs> I'm definitely interested in seeing more. Oh, cool. But thank well, you. I, I appreciate you for, for, uh, for inviting me on, man. It, it, this was a lot of fun. Well, and before I let you go, so obviously, yeah, the Rocky Minute, um, you guys cover the Rocky films one minute at a time. Is that right? Yeah. It gets confusing because you say Rocky Minute, people think that our episodes are one minute long. What we do is we take each individual, we chop the movies up into one minute chunks, and then we analyze one minute of movie time, which you uh, you said before that um, you, you when you look at, a, at one minute of a movie – there's a whole screen full of stuff that you just look in the background. You look at the walls in the apartment. You look at this. You find so many small details that you didn't know were there. You could see a movie a hundred times and not know that there's a, a rifle on Rocky's wall in his apartment in Rocky One. Uh, little details like that. I mean, it's it really is incredible. And, uh, well, I know. Yeah, I, I know that when you invited me on and we discussed uh, a Rocky Three. Um, we spent uh, we spent a good twenty minutes uh, pretty much dissecting the MGM logo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know right. I, mean? right. I, I never would have thought that, but yeah, I remember obviously looking at the first uh, couple minutes of Rocky Three, and I was thinking, man, MGM—they were that studio who, outside of James Bond and Rocky, they really didn't have anything else, did they? <laughs> and how they lasted as long as they did. <laughs> It's crazy because it's such a recognizable logo and movie studio that you thought they were monsters, but no, they were putting out duds. They 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 got sold like two or three separate times. It's nuts, yeah. But yeah, sorry, I, I don't mean to derail, but yeah, it's those kind of things that you, that you really could dig deep in when you're looking at a movie one minute at a time. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, we'll be looking forward to those episodes. I know that those will be uh, coming out soon. Is there anything else that you're working on or anything else that you want to give a shout out to or plug or mention? Uh, yeah, I also um, – your fans might know who uh, Craig Cohen and Ryan Rabalkin are. They they have uh, – Craig is a host of the Slycast and Ryan is a host of Going the Distance, the Rocky Series podcast. The three of us uh, Rocky podcasters, we do uh, like a holy triumvirate get together. Uh, we try to do it like once a month where we go over a Stallone movie and we just do one-offs. Uh, you know, we spend one episode going over a Stallone movie um, that we kind of leave up to the listeners to vote on. We put out a Twitter poll. We each pick a movie uh, in Stallone's career. We put out a Twitter poll and, and let the listeners decide. And, uh, you know, as, as most of you probably know, Stallone doesn't doesn't always have uh, Academy Award winning bangers either. So uh, we got to slog through some of those, but it's fun. It's a lot of fun recording with those guys. Uh, and they they're, uh, those episodes come out on all of our respective podcast feed feeds. Uh, mine is Rocky Minute. Going the Distance is Ryan's and Slycast is Craig's. Very cool. Well, hey, uh, Doug, I do appreciate this. We'll be in touch. And I would love to have you back on if you're uh, if you're ready and if you're willing. 
hey, man, you handpicked a winner this time. So I, I, I imagine that you could do the same in the future. And I would love to join you again if you'll have me. Awesome. All right. Okay. Well, cool. Well, hey, thanks, Doug. I do appreciate it. Um, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. And we'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast.